Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Greta Thomas. And I'm Claire Hatton. We're all about producing content where you can be inspired by and learn from amazing female entrepreneurs and leaders to help you achieve and even exceed your career goals. Before we begin this week's episode, though, it would mean a huge amount if you could rate and review our show if you haven't already. Consider it as your kind deed for the day. And we'd love to hear from you. So why not follow us or message us on LinkedIn? Mention the podcast and we'll be all ears. And now enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome to our first show for 2023. Woohoo! I know, can you believe it? It's 2023. <laughs> it's amazing. I hope you've all had a chance for a bit of a break and a, and a reset during the past few weeks. We've had a great break and we've had a really great chance to switch off. So it's been brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. And happily, it feels good to be back as well, which is a sign that, you know, I've certainly personally anyway, feel rejuvenated. So yeah, that's good. Totally feel the same way. Now, although we didn't know at the time, we have quite a topical guest today, given the very recent surprise announcement by New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern that she was stepping down. Topical because we have our first former female politician on the show today. We sure do. And we're really excited to share that we have the Honourable Nicola Roxon joining us. Nicola's a trailblazing woman in Australia's national political scene. She was elected to Australia's federal parliament at the age of just 31 and went on to become Australia's health minister for four years and then the country's first attorney general. First female attorney general. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> These days, after stepping down from politics almost 10 years ago, Nicola has a portfolio of board roles as director and chair with four purpose organizations. And actually, I'm lucky enough to work alongside her on the Lifestyle Communities Board. Yeah. And that's one of the listed companies that you're on the board of. Yeah. Absolutely. So in this episode, you'll hear how a High Court judge joked that Nicola may cause a constitutional crisis when, as a young associate, Nicola shared her plans for her next career step. And they were slightly radical. <laughs> they were. They were, yeah. How Nicola handled and navigated the cut and sometimes brutal thrust of politics without taking things personally – about the world-leading health initiative she introduced that's been copied around the world that received special recognition from the World Health Organization, and how Nicola made the transition from politics to corporate boards after 15 years in Parliament. We think you'll be fascinated by and take so much away from this conversation with the thoughtful and purposeful Nicola Roxon. Nicola, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thanks for having me. Well, we're sitting here in Melbourne in a wonderful podcast studio for Vic Health, which is one of the boards that you chair. Is that correct? That's right. Yep. We've just had the AGM of, 
another board that we're both on. So it's a great opportunity to spend some time with you. And um, we're really excited about delving into your story and career. Before we get into the highlights of your career, one question that we like to ask all of our guests is if you were at a dinner party and you met somebody for the first time, what would you tell them that you do? So I did know that this was the question you like asking your guests first. And I thought that it's a nightmare for me because it is actually currently my worst question for anyone to ask me. Because as soon as I say, oh, I sit on boards or I'm a chair and director of boards or I'm now involved in governance for for-purpose organisations, honestly, people's eyes just <laughs> completely glaze over. <laughs> and actually, that's not normally the question I get asked. I normally get asked, oh, do you miss politics? Do you do anything now you're not in politics? Like it's always very much framed like that. Yeah. And so what I normally end up explaining to people is, there are actually a whole heap of purposeful things you can do that are not politics, much as I loved that period of time. But I really haven't found it nearly 10 years on from politics. I haven't really found a good handle to just describe what governance is and that I have a, a mix of roles. And so I end up talking about the particular organisation, whatever's the most relevant to yeah. the group of people I'm with. You know, oh, I chair Hester, the superannuation fund that's in the health sector, or I do X with Vic Health because I can follow up that tobacco control work. So I have no little pithy, and this podcast made me think, I need a pithy little answer. <laughs> you need an elevator yeah, pitch. I might not get invited to dinner <laughs> if I don't get an elevator pitch for future dinner party conversations. Oh, well, that's something to... So always go away and work on. <laughs> well, well, we'll talk about your board career a little bit later. But before we do, it would be great to delve into, you know, your earlier career experiences, even, even before we get into politics. Because you, you studied law and then moved into the trade union movement, which I think was probably a bit unconventional at the time in terms of what law graduates did. Was there a story behind why you did that? I mean, there was a story because I think one of the themes that goes through most of my professional life has been worrying about inequities. And studying law was fantastic. I loved law, you know, but the parts that I was drawn to were industrial relations where I was particularly interested in the way women were paid or not paid in the workforce. And that sort of led me to have that as this kind of specialty in discrimination law and other issues. And when I did really well at uni, I landed a job at the High Court with Mary Gordon, who was the first female High Court judge. Wow. And she also had a bit of a labour and industrial history. But the tradition when you're an associate at the High Court, because you're only there for 12 or 18 months, is you have to then go and talk to each of the judges when you're leaving to tell them what you're going to do. And, you know, normally everyone's going saying, I'm going off to be a professor at this university or I'm going to the bar or I'm going to do. My judge, Mary Gordon, she joked with me that I nearly caused a constitutional crisis because she thought a majority of the judges nearly had a heart attack when I said I was going from the high court to go and work at a trade union. So it was a little bit not traditional, especially because I you know, was interested in the academic side of it. So they kind of expect there to be some trajectory. But for me, the union was a place where you could do a broader range of good. I sort of felt in the law, you were often dealing with individual people who had already been treated really badly. 
you couldn't kind of get to the front end of trying to help people, you know, structurally in a bigger group and negotiating with them or on their behalf. And that's sort of the same thing that then ultimately led me to politics, that you can deal with the laws that actually shape some of those disputes. It was very funny going and talking to these, you know, elderly, mostly male group of judges who nearly tipped off their chairs to think that I was wasting my legal career by going and doing this. But I think to their credit, some of them also really saw that that was an area that you could change and use your brain power and your imagination and your energy to try to do some good. And what was it, do you think, about either your upbringing or your background that gave you this interest in inequalities and systems as well? Look, lots of things. I mean, my, my father died when I was quite young, when I was um, just about to turn 11. And so I grew up in a family with a very strong mother and three of us as girls. And I do think that we were very lucky that despite that tragedy, we had enough resources to be well educated. Mum worked. We had that seen that as a role model. And I really grew up thinking that, you know, there weren't any barriers about what I could do. And so then once you get into the real world and realise that there are huge barriers for lots and lots of people, I think it's what then really drove my interest in how structures do cause that inequality. It's not just an individual thing that can be fixed by each of us. There are things across the board that we can change. So I think that probably did drive some of it. Your mum must have been pretty proud of your career trajectory and what you've achieved. Yeah, pretty proud, but also I think very grounding, like she wasn't going to fall for too much of letting me think I was important in any way, which was good. And she's also, I mean, my sisters do amazing and very different things and she's incredibly proud of them. So I just feel that the real thing is she gave us a lot of confidence and that inner sort of, I don't have to really worry about what everyone thinks about me. I like it if people like me or appreciate my work, but that confidence you get if you have a parent who really believes that, you know, you're doing well and that you're trying hard and it doesn't matter if you try something and you fail. That doesn't mean you're a failure. It just means you tried something and it didn't work. And I think she instilled that in us definitely. That's pretty priceless, isn't it? Because, it, you know, that sort of self-doubt, self-questioning and lack of confidence can be a major obstacle for so many women. Definitely. I think, and that's you know, it's in your own head, but it's also potentially you get bombarded with it from a lot of other people, and particularly in politics, which I fear is getting worse for women. So if you don't have that core self-belief, and I don't even really mean as ego, but more your own sense of why you want to do something or what you're trying to achieve, you can really get beaten up emotionally, I think. And I do worry for people that, you know, that's a frailty that most of us have, but can really be played upon and damage people in more robust environments, which, you know, we still have in Parliament. And speaking of Parliament, what was it that made you make the leap into running for Parliament? The industrial system in Australia is quite political. I was involved in the maritime union dispute on the docks that was very public. And I just thought, look, I can actually have an even broader impact if I get this opportunity. Some of it was, you know, choices that I'd made put me in a good position when there was this opportunity. But I did make choices that meant I had a lot of opportunity and, and I think a lot of skills that were useful for being in the parliament. And then you have to have a dose of being in the right place at the right time, being seen as 
talented enough to do it. You know, all those things have to come together. You have to have a lot of supporters. You have to have people who will advocate on your behalf. And happily, I did. And that was at the age, a really quite a young age, wasn't it? You were 31, I think, when you went into Parliament. Yeah, when I got elected, I was 31. Amazing. And it certainly made me a lot younger than a lot of my contemporaries. But you look at Parliament now, that's changed. The spread Thankfully. is much you know, yeah. better and different and more varied, more, more cultural backgrounds. It definitely looks much more like Australia, still with work to yeah. do. Yeah. Um, but I certainly did feel young. And I actually even for a period had the youth portfolio in this terrible time where everyone else would say, oh, you can do the youth portfolio because you're, you're a young person. And I said, well, I'm actually 34, so I'm probably like double the age of most of the people you think I'm trying to communicate with. You know, never knew when I did the radio interviews who the popular singer was. I never knew who the, <laughs> you know, it was just a bit mortifying because I was much younger than some of the others, but I really wasn't in the cohort that they thought I could really naturally just, you know, <laughs> know what was going on with. I didn't have a teenage daughter like I do now. I'd actually be better at the job now than I I would be then. (laughs) I think you were in politics for 15 years and you did some incredible jobs. You were Australia's health minister for four years and, and then you became Australia's first ever female attorney general. That's a big deal, unfortunately, because it shouldn't be that way. But how did that actually feel to be the first woman? Look, it felt great um, and it was a real honour and it was also a little bit depressing because, you know, it was 2011 and you sort of think, well, okay, in 110 years of our federation when we've been producing female law graduates for, you know, 70 or 80 years and we've had plenty of women attorney generals since, interestingly. So it did feel like a big deal, but it also felt very busy. It was also at a time where our government's political capital was significantly reduced. And my sense really is the Attorney General's portfolio is the most interesting when you've got a lot of political capital because, you you know, you're changing, you're using laws to change things much more than in other areas. Do you want to explain what the Attorney General sort of remit actually is for people? I I mean, you're in charge of courts and appointments to the courts. You have oversight over a huge amount of legislation, a much bigger amount of people's time than than I realised before I was in the role and that most people realise is um, being responsible for ASIO, so the warrants and things that are issued for our intelligence agencies. Very time-consuming, very specialised. The Attorney General is the kind of public check in that. So I sort of took that role very seriously. You know, I want to be authorising things that are an intrusion into people's rights unless there's a very good concern or reason for doing it. And so I did feel that it probably wasn't the best period of time to really enjoy the power of what you can do as the Attorney General. There was, we were at a point in government where we were cleaning up a lot of mess, you know. So, so there were some great things and I really feel like that made it hopefully easier for the next person. Like every time you do a first, no one really wants to be the first. You want the second, third, fourth, you know, you want to be opening those gates for plenty of other women to step in and then do fantastic things. And ironically, the you know, one of the most famous things, if you're interested as a feminist, that happened during that period of time was that misogyny speech where Julia, you know, snapped, gave this amazing speech calling out, what so many of us have experienced, that's dismissive and aggressive critique. 
and I wasn't in the parliament. So I was at the High Court being the first female Attorney General to ever speak on the start of two new judges that we had appointed. And I was thinking I was doing something really good for women because it was the first time and there was this massive lineup of men, if anyone's seen a picture of the court. And um, I was thinking, this feels like a pretty good thing to be doing. A milestone day. that long ago that I was an associate in this court. Here I am. And then I get back to the parliament. It was, oh, my God, wasn't that an amazing speech Julia gave? And I said, oh, what happened? What happened? And anyway, so, so many times since then, everyone says, what was it like to be there? And so I said, I actually wasn't there, even although I thought I was doing something. Historic. Well, like, and good for women. And <laughs> Well, you were. It was just a double day. It was just a double day and uh, so that just does seem, I don't know, there's some level of irony in that. And, of course, I was there for much of all of the things that led up to it but not actually when she delivered that speech, pretty much off the cuff. And, I mean, that was really That was off the cuff? Yeah, it was off. I mean, she knew that there were going to be questions generally about some issues that were running with the government and she knew that that was going to go to really was she being a, a good leader and a you know, truly standing up for women and a whole range of things. So I think she'd thought about some of the general things she would use in answer to a question. She was just expecting it to be part of the to and fro of question time. And instead the opposition leader, Tony Abbott at the time, sort of dispensed with question time and moved this motion, which was an attack on her. And that was what then led to the speech. And actually she might even not have given it up. Usually the Prime Minister wouldn't respond themselves. Someone else would you know, defend the Prime Minister and she said, no, nah, I've had enough, I'm going to do it. Oh, it's just um, a, it's And it's just, a, was it a great, it's amazing. amazing speech and, um, you know, not I don't think what she would choose to be remembered for but no. I think she knows it's been a powerful call to action for other women and so she's happy to own that. Well, but, yes, it was an incredible speech but, Nicola, let's just give you some oxygen right now and say you made history on that day too <laughs> and thank you for that contribution because all of these steps are steps forward for equality and that is what we all are after. And so, yeah, thank you yeah, for that. Thank you. When you think about that time in, in politics and you think about the achievements that you had over, over those diverse experiences, what are some of the things that you're really proud of that come to mind? There are a lot of things I'm really proud of. Some of them get much more coverage, you know, than others. But before we jump into that, there was also another first that got talked about a lot but not really since, and I actually think fundamentally affected the way I did my job, which was I was the first cabinet minister, first female cabinet minister that had a preschool age child. Really? So, I mean, there was plenty of women who were parents, um, you know, but the kids were older or they were already grown up and left home, and there was plenty of men who had preschool children, but not in cabinet. And I think some of the way I had to manage my time and all those sorts of things really made a big difference about how I needed to structure my working life and what I was prepared to really spend lots and lots of time doing and some of the things that I just wasn't prepared to. What's an example? So an example was, you know, you spend 20 weeks of the year in Canberra where Becca was really little and I was breastfeeding. My mum travelled with me and, you know, that was a different setup. But for most of the time she was at home with Michael, my husband, and so in Canberra I wanted to do as much work as I could to make sure that for the shorter times that I was at home that I didn't have to work in the evenings all the time or as much on the weekends. And so I used to get stakeholders, you know, like the AMA or others, who would be really cranky if I wouldn't go to dinner with them 
every second month. And I'd say to them, look, I will meet you. You're really important. I'll talk about any issues. You know, we can have an hour in the day when you need it, but I'm not spending three and a half hours out for dinner because that's actually when I do all the briefs and preparation for other things, which means that I can manage to run all these complex things and keep across it all and keep myself sane and keep myself, you know, married and uh, with a happy child. And so I think some of those things just people underestimated. So I'm proud that I could manage that and I'm proud the team worked really well with me to make that possible. So it wasn't that other people didn't have to do things to make that work. My family had to do lots of things to make that work. But then, of course, the content things that I worked on that I'm really proud of, I get a lot of recognition for the introduction of plain packaging for tobacco, which was a world first. And now there's nearly 30 countries yeah. around the world who have done that or are doing that. And that's, you know, just fantastic to be in a country where there was enough support from non-government organisations, where there was a really savvy press, where there was a good parliamentary system, where I didn't actually feel threatened. In some other countries, people feel threatened taking on organisations like, you know, powerful industrial uh, organisations. I didn't think my life was at risk. I just thought I was taking a political risk, a calculated political risk, which I think was really, you know, paid off. So I'm proud of that and, you know, a lot of things have flowed from that. But there were sort of quite smaller in the scheme of things other changes that I thought were really significant and some of them were particularly of benefit to women. So I was really proud that very quickly we introduced the first chief nursing officer. So we had chief medical officer in the Commonwealth forever. It always had been a man, you know, you need those experts to be able to advise you and stand up with you. But the largest number of people employed in the health system are nurses. They're mostly women, but we never got that sort of advice. So in the scheme of things, did it fundamentally, you know, change the world or did people notice? Maybe not. But I think building in those voices from a professional group that was not properly heard in the sector then has all sorts of other flow-ons. And there were similar ones like that, getting nurse practitioners and midwives direct access to Medicare. There hadn't been any new professionals able to access Medicare without a referral from a doctor. There was normally a gate male gatekeeper. So those sorts of changes, you know, were the structural things that I was trying to do to change some of the mix of recognising the really skilled women working in that sector. And so, I mean, I'm not going to bore you with a whole list of those things. Setting up the Child Abuse Royal Commission um, as the Attorney General was a really big deal. And um, Jenny Macklin, Julia Gillard and I were the kind of three key people involved in that decision. And I do think it's contributed to a major shift in our country about what we understand about listening to the voices of children, mm-hmm. understanding that we have to hear people that don't have power in a different way and we can't expect them to kind of knock the doors down to tell us what's wrong. We have to be really listening differently. And so, you know, there's some things like that that I'm really proud of that were great to work on. Sometimes you don't know the full impact until afterwards and other times, you know, you wish you'd done something slightly differently and could have got more out of it for the community. But by the time I left, I felt very pleased that I'd contributed to lots of important things. Yeah. You know, you should be really proud because there were a lot of really fantastic things that you achieved. And But I can't imagine that it was easy. It's hard for us to imagine, you know, what a politician's life is like. We see it on the, on the, on the TV and we hear about it. What, what are some of the challenges that you find, found the most difficult? There's lots of them. I think just getting 
time and political capital on the right issues is the biggest challenge. And, you know, maybe you know, in business or in a community organisation, it's the same thing. You know, we're all at risk of letting kind of urgent things nudge out the important ones. But it's just on steroids or times a thousand in politics because every bit of media, every blow up in your party room about something, some local problem in your electorate going wrong, all of those things can just derail the energy that you would put into the particular big thing that you're trying to pursue. And then, of course, you've got a caucus to try to work with who have all got lots of issues. So the caucus is the other Labor uh, backbenchers. You've got a cabinet that have got all of their political issues I mean, I was in Parliament during the um, Rudd, Gillard, Rudd years. So, you know, we did have turmoil and complexity, but also lots of excitement. So it's just, I think the biggest challenge was time, thoughtful time. And one of my big takeouts and advice I always try to give to anyone, anywhere, no matter what their job is, is do not let the kind of day-to-day demands stop you from carving out some serious thinking time and, you know, discussion with your key advisors, that thoughtful work you have to do that then sets up your strategy for a whole lot of things that can then go, then can have their own momentum. But if you're just always jumping when everyone else says jump and you still have to do that for, I don't know, 85% of the time, but just having that 15% where you're really thinking and choosing what you're thinking about and planning and working with people, I think is really important. You see the rough and tumble of politics, particularly in things like question time and the like. What techniques or habits did you develop? Because things can get pretty ruthless and bitter and mean and personal to cope with sort of the onslaught, which is their job, of opposition attacks or opposition criticism. And I'm sure sometimes it got personal. Yeah, I think the the most important thing, and maybe this is in some odd way easier in politics, is if you remember it's about the issue, you know, it's a contest of ideas and you're usually being attacked on the actual issue, even if sometimes it comes clothed in other things. So I think instead of internalising that, you know, what what am I doing wrong? Why, why am I being attacked? Unless actually they're attacking this policy or they don't agree with this idea. But the reason I'm doing that is, you know, the tobacco one, to me, and I must have said it a million times, probably more, that our aim was to make sure that we didn't have any extra young person that was necessary ever start smoking and that I'd, I'd never met a parent who wanted their child to smoke. And so every time people would, you know, it's the nanny state or, you know, you're doing this or the industry can't operate in Australia. And I just think, you know what? That main game is protecting young people from getting this really harmful addiction. I can actually cope with, you know, somebody saying it's the nanny state, probably worse things to be called, you know. And I do think it's very hard when people, I mean, Julia was subjected to just some absolutely outrageous comments and and attack. And she's sort of reflected since that when you're in it, you're, you're actually so much more robust at just letting it wash off you in the day's fighting. I think it's afterwards you sometimes think, oh, my goodness, how yeah. did I actually cope during that time? So sometimes it's like the, the momentum of it. But I, I found the technique of what is the main game? What are you actually trying to achieve? It's easier to depersonalise it. But I think in politics those issues are really obvious. You know, around a boardroom table, if you're disagreeing with each other, it can feel much more personal 
and you can worry, am I presenting it in the right way? Is this another techniques I can use? Is Have I missed something here? And that self-doubt is tricky sometimes rather than look, the end game is this. So how do you get through that? What are the things you uh, say to yourself or what are the things you do to kind of overcome those thoughts and fears? I mean, I do try to be really prepared. I do try to make myself think of things from different perspectives. So, you know, if I'm really worried about a particular issue and it doesn't seem like other people are, I try to imagine why others are coming from it from a different direction. And I think board work is really about people. So I do think those relationships and understanding that we all come to around a board table, you all come to it with different skills means that it's good to test sometimes your ideas with others. And I think there are ways to do that. But I do think that there are sometimes time where you've just got to steal yourself for disagreeing. And one of the things that I am interested in, like coming from politics, you are used to people disagreeing, but you're also then really used to collective decision making. So you can disagree and you have big fights, whatever. But at the end of the day, when cabinet or caucus or the parliament makes a decision, then that's the decision and you all work with that. I have found that the politer world of governing boards can actually mean that people are are not used to disagreement and don't know how disagreement can be about an issue and not about people. And so I think that can be interesting. And I mean, Claire and I are only just recently on a board together, so none of your listeners should think this is about the particular board we're on. I mean, I've now seen quite a lot of different boards not-for-profit, for-profit, profit-to-member, you know, over the nine years. And they've all got different personalities. And so I do think thinking about how do you get really informed about other perspectives, you have to be really curious. Because I don't come from the business world, I have a lot of humility about other factors that people might be thinking about that I wouldn't instantly think about. And one of my challenges is the things that I think about a lot I'm learning now, nine years on, are sometimes risks that are much, much further down the track. And knowing that I'm thinking about them much further away, I have to find a different language because not everyone needs to deal with risks that are further away today, but they might need to over a certain amount of time. So I think sitting on a board with you, what you do is you ask questions that perhaps other people wouldn't ask, which is really good. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's what you want. The idea of diversity, whether it's women or people of different cultural backgrounds, they've really been proxies for how do we get a diverse range of worldviews so that we ask different questions and don't hopefully don't get caught out by some sort of risk that we didn't see or by ignoring a new opportunity. And so hopefully I can play a role in that. But I've forgiven myself that I'm not going to know everything about everything and that's okay because you're around a table sharing ideas and issues together. How did you come to make the decision to leave politics? It actually wasn't that hard for me. 15 years is a long time. I never wanted to stay to the point that I was kind of bitter or cranky about anything. I was getting a bit cranky about the absolutely normal demands of the job it sort of got to the point that I had been to too many local events. You know, these fantastic, wonderful people. My lecture was very ethnically mixed. So you'd go to the Ethiopian New Year celebrations and you'd go to the Vietnamese temple dinner and you'd go to, and that was great for years and years. And I I felt like a really good way of me staying in touch with the community I was representing. 
but at some point when you start feeling, do I really have to go to this thing? Do I really have to stop and talk to someone at the supermarket when I'm just dashing in to pick up something and they want to talk about their immigration problem? And I didn't want to resent it. And I think that the community is entitled to have people who are absolutely going to give their 200%. Some people stay for longer because they haven't got a chance to be a minister or they haven't achieved something they really set out to achieve. And I felt very proud of all of that. But in the great complexity of politics, I was in a very strong Labor seat. Um, I was pretty sure we were going to lose. And I actually also felt leaving at that time meant a new Labor member in my seat of Jellybrand would have time in opposition to find their feet and be part of the next Labor government, be ready to be a minister or leader in another government. And so I actually also thought it was better for the party. And how did you make that? transition because you know being in politics for 15 years it's quite a long time how did you make the transition into let's call it the corporate world or whatever this world is I, 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 I actually used to call it civilian life so you go life? back to okay. civilian yeah. life you know <laughs> because I think going back to that earlier advice about if you're focusing on what the issues are it's actually much easier to make that transition. If you're in politics because you like the attention or you want to be on TV or you want to, then when you get out, it's much harder because you don't get that sort of attention. If that was never really why you were there, I mean, I quite liked the media. I felt like I was, was one of the things I was good at in terms of communications or not being too nervous about tricky questions and but it wasn't why I was there and I never wanted to continue being a commentator or anything afterwards. So I was pretty clear that when I got out, I was going to make a significant career change. I just wasn't sure what it was going to be. And actually, my husband gave me really good advice. When I got out, we were going to go on a big trip and I had already decided I was going to turn off all my, you know, wasn't going to read newspapers, wasn't going to listen to the radio. We're going to spend three months completely disconnected. Just before we left, he said, actually, I think since you've left your job, I'll leave mine too and we don't really have to come back so we can just go. I mean, we did come back when the daughter was going, you know, into whatever it was, grade four or grade five, and but we didn't have to and that sense of freedom and turning off from everything. And he also said, I know you'll be offered lots of different things. Can you just not agree to any of them till we come back from the trip? And so I think by having that, just that time, to decompress before I jumped into the next thing, I definitely meant that I made some different choices than if I had decided, you know, the week after I left politics what I was going to do. Giving yourself that time for me was really important and then gradually building up the portfolio and not rushing. And so there were times where I thought I might be a bit bored. The first time in my life I've been bored. You know, there were times like that, but I'm not going to rush and I think that helped my balance in my own life. Yeah. You gave yourself some space, which is really great. How have you thought about your board career in terms of a portfolio? Have you got a strategy or has it just sort of evolved? <laughs> I do now. I don't think I really did at the start. I think I always knew, but I didn't know how to articulate it properly, that I was looking for the sweet spot of businesses that are commercially successful but really for purpose. I remember a very established older direct male director saying to me, I really think you might have an overdeveloped sense of social responsibility. 
And I was just gobsmacked. Like, well, yes, because I am interested in that. But, I mean, I didn't say at the time and I've kicked myself ever since. Maybe you have an underdeveloped sense of social responsibility. Like business and social responsibility can go together. Absolutely. Um, And so I think I have tried to build a portfolio that has had that mix of very purposeful, some that are, I do free of charge that are charities or I don't want to be paid for, you know, others where I'm learning some skills that maybe aren't quite as much in that fit. But when you're changing careers, you've got to have stepping stones, I think. And I think that's kind of advice I will often give people too. You might know that where you want to end up, but you don't always land that job straight away. And people get really frustrated. Sometimes you actually have to build your knowledge base or even, I mean, I felt leaving politics, I almost had to prove to people that I wasn't only about politics. Yeah. And so, you know, a board like the um, affordable housing business that we're on was interested in that social policy background and not at all alarmed by it. But some others would be like, well, will she be able to think commercially enough? And, you know, now I'm much better at explaining why risk or reputation management or how those things can marry together if you're really caring about your employees when we're in this hot market for keeping good talent you know, so I, th- I think that I have a strategy which feel is like, to me, a play school window. I don't know if all your international, like, so a window with the four segments, you know, yeah, okay. old style, you know, do something that you, is absolutely in your comfort zone that you know you're really, really going to be good at. Yeah. Think about what is in the next window or the next frame, something that's adjacent to that, where you'll be extending yourself, but you're still using a few of your kind of established skill set. Do something you just think is going to be really fun and really interesting, even if it doesn't fit any of those, and something where you're really clearly giving back. And I think in the portfolio, you don't always have that because the roles come and go at different times, but sort of not doing everything that's just in health and then that's the only thing you're known for or everything that's the smallest charity where everybody wants all your time all week and you don't actually do anything you get paid for isn't a good balance either. Yeah, I like Which that. takes me back to your very first question of when people ask you what you do. This It sounds really wanky, to be honest, to say, oh, I have a portfolio of roles. <laughs> but having a kind of mix of yeah. roles that you think are interesting and purposeful is great. And I love that they want your brain power and your insights, but not your body in the same way right. that in politics yeah. they just like relentlessly or, want or, you. Or actually an executive corporate Definitely. world. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think you're, you're, you've nearly got an elevator pitch. It's it's coming along <laughs> as we go through this interview. You marketing people can give me advice on these sorts of things. <laughs> what misconceptions do you think people have about being a board director? I think people absolutely think that you are the key decision maker and can implement things immediately. They don't understand the much more subtle role of governing and setting the you know, the, the banks of the river through which management's decisions will then flow either fast enough or not, you know. So I think people don't easily understand that it is often an influence role, not always a decision-making role. And so trying to move over time a setting in a business and how those discussions can help management. I mean, the management that like their boards get so much value out of them because they actually want the tricky questions to be explored at the board and use that collective different backgrounds and test things. Others who are a bit more defensive, I think, then find that the 
kind of rules and regulations of governance are more cumbersome. And so I think people misunderstand where those things are sometimes. And I think having been a minister, I'm actually quite disciplined. So as chair of HESTA, you know, every single person that wants you to invest in their fantastic business thinks that as as the chair that I would be the one that would, you know, sign the $5 million cheque. I mean, there are so many processes as there should be. You know, that's really done very arm's length. And I might be able to say, oh, this looks like an interesting idea. Is, is someone in the team interested in looking at it? But actually I'll be setting the policies for investment or the returns that we might want or the how we measure reputation risk of where we're going to invest, not the actual decision on any particular investment. And I think that is not well understood by most of the community. I'd love you to cast your mind back and think about, you know, whether it was in the rough and tumble of politics or even the rough and tumble of trade union or in the sort of disguised rough and tumble of corporate boardrooms. <laughs> you know, what's been the toughest moment in your career? Or maybe it was in a transition time. I think that there have been some really tough conversations where I've known, you know, in my mind I was right, but also what I've known that was more important is that if I didn't say it, I would never feel that I'd done my job properly. And there are some times when you do that and the reactions are not good or the flow on is not good and you can come out of a discussion like that and think, oh, my God, that was really, you know, be sh- you know that you've done what you needed to do and said it in the way that you needed to and being careful but nevertheless you're a bit shaky afterwards that that was actually really tough or the person I was saying to really didn't like it. And when I think back about those difficult examples definitely more rather than less of them have turned into something really constructive and important. And so I think having the guts to say those things is to me is still worth it. And some of them that maybe haven't, either I've learned from that or I've known then that's the time to walk away. Like at some point you can only, and I think as a director that that is tricky. You're not the person doing the things day to day. And if there's really a fundamental disagreement about how to approach something that's really significant, then that's actually pretty much the only choice that you have yeah. often. I always think I'm being extremely polite, but I know because I've heard enough people tell me whether it's my family and friends or whether it's, you know, on the basketball court or at work, that I, because I'm quite direct, that that is actually difficult for people. So t- to me, that was one of the skills in politics, being direct and not having all the kind of fluff around your answers and feeling like people are dodging things. But that is not how most of us have been brought up. And so hearing something that's quite direct, if it's difficult or if it's about style or if it's about something that has really upset you because they've been dismissive. I mean, you know, I I still do see plenty of men being really inappropriately dismissive to women colleagues who might be their seniors, let alone their their same level. And I'm I'm just actually over that sort of behaviour. I'm not going to not call it out now. I'm I'm going to choose when when I have that discussion with them, but I am going to have it. And lots of people are now really good at knowing that they've got to change and actually quite like having been told in a setting that allows them to then grow and change. Some others don't. And, but I mean, but I've got to live with myself. So I've, 
probably getting older and more bolshy about when I'm going to speak up about some of those behavioural things. So direct Nicola Roxon lives on. Direct Nicola Roxon does live on, <laughs> but right. hopefully tactful uh, as well. Nicola, last question. And it's, it's not, well, it might be easy for you, but it, I think it's quite a big question. So what does success look like to you? I think if success, if, if we want to ask that question and it's only about each of us individually, the answer is a bit different. You know, success for me is being involved in organisations where I think there are good people doing good things that help make the planet a better or more interesting place to live. You know, there's any any range of those things. And if, if I can be part of that, then I feel like that's successful. But for me as a person, there's also that layer of I want to be able to contribute to that by conducting myself in a way that's really authentic to me. And so some of that is is being prepared to speak up when I see things that I don't think are good behaviour and that isn't always easy to do. And also for me having some balance with my life, my family, my partner, the things that I like to do outside work. So it's not all about work. But what does success look like on the bigger scale for us as a community I think is a harder question. And I I would love people to have a view that we're all part of the same network. However you choose to work or live your life, that still has impacts on other people. And success for me would be everyone being just that little bit more aware that you all get to play a role. And it doesn't have to be on a big scale. It can be on a small scale, but it does all matter. We can't just live in our little silos and as long as we're okay, it's fine. That's actually, we know that's not how the world is going to survive in the future. So success on that bigger scale would be us all just thinking a little bit more about everything else that's around us because it will improve the decisions that we all make. I love that. So do I. And it's back to systems, isn't it? Yes, I did say, I did, did confess I was a systems person. Well, Nicola, thank you so much. It's been a fascinating conversation. If listeners would like to learn more about you or the things you're involved with, is there anywhere they should go to find out more? Yeah, I mean, look, I do have a website. It's not a cutting edge one, but people can contact me through that. And it's just my name, so www.nicolaroxon.com. So it's pretty easy to find. And it's got, you know, some speeches. It's got the different organisations that I'm involved with. Fantastic. And so it just remains for me to say thank you again. It's been a fantastic conversation. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks so much. I really admire how Nicola has managed her career transition, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I thought it was so helpful to all of us, actually, for us to hear her explain how she dealt with and continues to deal with um, confrontations and disagreements. Yeah. You know, making sure she focuses on the issue rather than allowing it to affect her personally. Yeah, I also like that point she made about she also focuses on the issue to steel herself to have the courage to speak out when it might not be popular in the room. And I think that's, they're, they're both great sort of pieces of advice there. Yeah, they really are. And sort of off topic... How amazing to hear that the famous Julia Gillard misogyny speech was off the cuff and wasn't planned for that day. 
Yeah, I know that was really fascinating and actually classic that Nicola was making her own piece of history as Attorney General at the time. I know, what good and bad timing that was. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Stay tuned for our next episode in two weeks where we interview an inspirational and creative international award-winning drone photographer. And there's a real twist in her story that will take your breath away. So here's to a great 2023, everyone. Have fun, go for it, and ciao for now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.